When you're hiring, it feels amazing to finally close out a job search. But what if you could get rid of the search and just match? You can with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Happy New Year, Her Hoopstats fans. Welcome to the first Her Hoopstats Unplugged podcast of 2020. It might be a new year, but you've still got the same host here, Megan Gower, welcoming you back to the new year. Been a couple of weeks since we last recorded. We took a few weeks off for the holidays, and we hope you all had a great holiday break as well. But we're back full swing and running for 2020 with a bunch of NCAA women's basketball content. We're seeing a bunch of parody this season. Conference play is underway. We've got a huge non conference matchup on Thursday this week. Definitely stick around for that part of the podcast. We got some fun content from uh, both the UConn and Baylor side from us and then from some of the players and Gino Oriema. So you won't want to miss that later on in the episode. Um, But without further ado, we're diving into this year's first podcast with Calvin Wetzel from our Hoopstats team. Hey, Calvin, how's it going? Hey, Megan, I'm doing well. How are you doing? Good. Happy New Year. New Year to new, to you too. Happy New Decade. It's good to be with you. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, speaking of New Decade, we get to kick this off by talking about something we probably didn't talk a lot about in the 2010s, which is parody in the college women's basketball. I think we saw a decade of, you know, a couple really strong programs or four years where UConn pretty much won everything, but not really the case this year at all. And you had a great article about that for us that came out um, last week. So I wanted to kick it off by kind of talking about that. Yeah, it's definitely, uh, definitely hope you're right that this is the decade of the parody. You know, uh, last decade might have been better for you and your fellow UConn fans, but um, 
this year we've already seen. So, I mean, ironically, the article comes out at a time when UConn is an undefeated number one, but they had to get there. They're the third number one. Uh, I think it was December 23rd when they became the third number one, which is the first time since like the 90s that we had three different number ones before Christmas. A lot of times UConn's been number one, like, you know, all the way through. So um, with Stanford losing, and it's not just that we've had multiple number ones lose, like we're having top teams lose to unranked teams. It's not like one is losing to two or three or four. Stanford loses to Texas when Texas isn't even uh, getting an AP vote. And Louisville, when they're number two, they lose to Iowa State, who isn't even getting an AP vote. So it's just feeling a lot more kind of a anyone can be anyone sort of a world in women's basketball than it has been in the last several years. And it's really exciting. I think it's great for the sport too, just in terms of marketability and growing, you know, the fan fan base of the sport. I mean, if you think about any sport, no one really wants to watch other than fans of that team. Like if you look at the NFL, the whole country is basically happy that the Patriots lost last week, you know, like no one wants to watch the same team win all the time. And, and, you know, the more unpredictability you have and the more a number one could lose on any given night, the more people are going to watch. So I'm really excited, you know, just about the direction that's going. Same. I mean, it's been crazy all season long. You check the ESPN box scores and all of a sudden you're like, oh, wait, the number three team is only up by, you know, five points on some random team. So it keeps it interesting. Definitely it makes you want to turn the TV on and not just be like, oh, you know, UConn's up by 50 over someone again. Nothing exciting happening here. So I think it's been really interesting so far. A lot of like kind of must watch games just because you never know what's going to happen. And we have kept seeing that, I think, to start the new year. So hopefully it will be the decade of parody, but not just from kind of our initial reactions. You kind of broke down, you know, some of the numbers behind that in your article and how um, we can see not just from, you know, the AP poll, but other things as well, that the parody really is there this season. Do you want to talk about that at all? Yeah, so I, you know, kind of got thinking about it just after seeing a few really highly ranked teams lose to unranked teams. I thought, like, this doesn't really happen very often. So, but just the fact that it's happened like two or three times or, you know, however many times doesn't necessarily mean that there's actually more parity. It could have just been random coincidence uh, that, you know, a couple number ones lose early in the same season or whatever. So I had to dig into the actual math behind it which you can kind of read the article if you want to, uh, for our listeners, I mean, if, if you want to get get a more detailed explanation. But basically just the idea is standard deviation is is kind of how spread out teams are and uh, or how spread out a group of numbers is. And so if you look at the winning percentages of every team, the standard deviations are lower this year, as in the winning percentages are all closer to 50% just on average than they have been in the last few seasons. That's kind of an oversimplification of it, but um, it's, it's really like what we're seeing is real. It's not just Texas happened to be Stanford and Ohio State happened to be Louisville and Oregon and Baylor happened to lose on the same day. It's, it's one through 351 are all just closer together, closer to the middle than they have been, you know, in a long time. Yeah, definitely exciting to see. Kind of makes, you know, conference play more exciting in that there's not going to be as many, you know, teams running the table in their conferences. Um, definitely be some tighter matchups going forward in January and February. So it'll be interesting to see if it all holds up, but I think it will kind of going into the season. Definitely will be a 
fun March as well with everyone can be everyone kind of mentality that you get in the men's game. The closer we get to that, I think the crazier women's March Madness will get in comparison. Yeah, absolutely. And we're still seeing it literally as we speak. I have Maryland, Ohio State pulled up. I don't know if you have another screen watching that as well. But uh, Maryland is still, despite losing to Northwestern, which we'll get into in a little bit, still in the top five in our uh, her hoop stats rating. But they are in a super tight battle at home with Ohio State, who's also still unranked uh, right now. And it's just uh, that would be Maryland's second unranked loss after you know losing to Northwestern and that's the team everyone picked to, to win the Big Ten. So it's, you know, it hasn't stopped yet in terms of the parity, even as we uh, kind of get into the full swing of conference play. Yeah, definitely. I don't have it on, but I just pulled up the box score, and they're up just two at the end of the third, so a tight one there. Yeah, the Big Ten could be a little bit more up in the air, than I think, than people initially thought it would. I think a lot of people generally would have had Maryland as a pretty heavy favorite to win that this year, but. I think we'll get into it a little bit more later too, but Big Ten is shaping up to be kind of a pretty strong conference this year. Maybe not as strong as the Pac-12, but um, definitely a strong conference with a lot of tournament teams in it. So it'll be interesting to see kind of who comes out on top in that one. Might not be very clear cut like we thought it would be going into the season. Yeah, definitely. That was something I wanted to get into, you know, in a little bit too, when we talk about Northwestern, just the Big Ten and the Pac-12 and kind of some of what we're seeing that we didn't expect out of the Big Ten. It's it's really as a Big Ten fan, it's exciting. But I think just as a fan of the sport, it's exciting too. We can, yeah, we can get into yeah. it in a little bit. But exactly, yeah. So we'll get into that back more later. But before we hit on kind of you know the start of conference play and some of the things we've seen that have surprised us or are interesting to us, let's kind of look back in relation to kind of the parody but in general we just have four undefeated teams left so wanted to kind of hit on that I think that's probably a lower number than that we've seen at this time in the season um in other years don't quote me on that because I didn't actually look it up but it seems like it's lower um that list is kind of cut down nearly in half I think since the start of conference play so it's been interesting to follow but the last four undefeated teams in the country right now would be UConn, Oregon State, uh, NC State, and UCLA. So two Pac-12 teams, a American team, and a ACC team. Kind of any thoughts on those four teams? Who you might think will be the last one standing on that undefeated list? Yeah, well, I'm interested to hear what you say as well, because obviously your real team and your team that you love to talk about all the time, UCLA and UConn, are both both two of the last four. So interested to see what you think about that but I am looking at this and I'm just in terms of who's the last undefeated in my mind there's no way it's Oregon State I'm kind of going process of elimination when I'm looking at this not because they're necessarily any worse than any of these other teams these other three teams but their schedule in January is brutal they have the Arizona trip next their next two games um, both of those teams, obviously Arizona's ranked, Arizona State is sneaky good. Then they play the Bay Area teams, which obviously Cal is much improved, first-year coach Sharman Smith, but Stanford can pick anyone off and might even be favored in that game. And then they play Oregon twice. That's their next six games. Five of those six are against the top 41 in the Her Hoop Stats rating, which during that span, UCLA doesn't play anyone in the top 41. We talked about this in our preseason preview pod, uh, like beginning in November. 
I think it was that UCLA has a ridiculously backloaded Pac-12 schedule. They play all all their tough games in February. So I don't think Oregon State's making it out of that 6-0. I definitely think UCLA will be undefeated still by the time that stretch ends um, towards the end of January. Then if we look at the other two teams, UConn's biggest chance to lose in January, really their only significant chance, is this Thursday against Baylor, which we'll get into more in a bit. Um, But I do think they're going to win that game. We'll talk about that more when we get there. Um, And then they play Oregon and South Carolina beginning of February, which, interestingly, Oregon, South Carolina, and Baylor, those three non-conference games they have left, are actually one, two, and three in our Her Hoop Stats rating. UConn has the top three teams still left on their schedule. So I don't think they're going to make it out of that 3-0. and I think even, like, 2-1, and if you're a UConn fan, you know, has to feel pretty good. You can tell me if uh, if you would feel pretty good about that as a UConn fan, but if you go 2-1 and one against the top three teams, I, I think that's a win for them. And then NC State, in terms of their schedule, um, their next game is at UNC Tobacco Road Rival, which uh, should be pretty 50-50 game. NC State's a little bit better, but just in terms of the home court for North Carolina, either team could win that game. And then they, NC State has to go to Notre Dame, who's obviously – way down this year, but, you know, we talked about it on our last podcast, could still pop off at any moment. Um, and then NC State has to play Florida State, who was on the undefeated list uh, until this past week. So NC State has a pretty tough schedule to come up in the next few games. So I'm looking at Oregon State and NC State losing in the next couple weeks, I think. And especially if UConn does make it past Baylor. I think UConn and UCLA will both make it to February, and then it really is going to come down to whether UConn can beat Oregon and or South Carolina or not for who uh, who makes it further. But, yeah, what do you think? I, I know uh, you might agree with me on the UConn-UCLA just in terms of the teams you like, but who do you think is going to be last? Yeah, so for me, I'm going with UCLA. I actually will be surprised if UConn comes out of this week undefeated, um, but we'll get into that more later on um but yeah like you said about Oregon State their strength of schedule just kind of for the next few weeks is really tough the chances that they're coming out of like I think they play at Oregon on the 24th and then home against Oregon on the 26th Stanford before that so the chance that they don't lose by then is I would say pretty minimal they're they've got a really tough slate coming up um and then I also echo your kind of comments on the NC State schedule similar thing there I think that they're kind of in a position where they've got some tough games coming up and won't be surprised if they drop one but yeah I'm going with UCLA to be the last one um, standing they do have not the toughest Pac-12 schedule they do have three in a row on the road right now though so I think that'll be interesting they're a team that's kind of struggled on the road so far this season they've only played four true road games and they've only won them by a margin of like 11 points. Um, some of those have been tougher teams, but there's also been some teams that they probably should have beaten by more in there. So it'll kind of be interesting to see um, how that pans out. But then they're home against the two Washingtons after that. So if they can make it out of that road stretch without kind of falling to someone they shouldn't fall to, I think they're going to be the last one standings. Um, They've got to play at Arizona on the 31st of January. I think that's the first game that I'd be like, yeah, they could probably lose that. And then they did, though, kind of, you know, really blow Arizona out in the third quarter. Was it last night? Yeah, we're recording this on Monday. So last night. Um, 
So it'll be interesting to see kind of how that goes when they go back there. But their, you know, Pac-12 heavy, like, opponent schedule is really backloaded. So they've got a, quite a bit of time before they face the Stanford's Oregon schools of the conference. So I'm picking them to be the last undefeated. I'm sticking with my preseason very bold prediction that they could still win the regular schedule until they lose. <laughs> I think I'm just going to stick to that. <laughs> That is looking good so far. And you picked them in the Final Four, too, if I remember correctly. I might have, yeah. So we'll see. I don't know. I think most bracket predictions got them on like a two-seed, three-seed line right now. So not totally crazy. (laughs) Yeah, definitely, especially with the parity. Two or three is easily within striking distance of a Final Four run. Um, And you mentioned the the road trip. It is the altitude road trip, their next couple games coming up. So against Colorado and Utah. So Neither of those two teams are necessarily the best teams in the Pac-12, but it's always, when you go up into the mountains, it's always a little bit of a sneaky, tough road trip just in terms of adjusting to that altitude and the home court advantage that the teams in the mountain area have. So, so uh, But you're right, if they do make it through that, they should have no trouble at home against the Washington teams. and That alone will put them, will get them past uh, that really tough stretch from Oregon State. So. Yeah, exactly. So that would be my pick, but we'll see how it all shakes out. If you had to pick between UConn and UCLA, who are you going with? That's that's a good question. I think I would probably go with UCLA just because the Baylor game for UConn is tougher than anything UCLA has in the month of January. Um, But I do think UConn's going to win the Baylor game. I'm not so confident that I would you know, if you force me to pick, I'm going to pick them over UCLA for last night defeated. But if UConn does win the Baylor game, I do think I would, I would maybe switch and pick UConn because UCLA does have that road game against Arizona before UConn's next tough games against Oregon and South Carolina. Fair, that makes sense. I think even if they win Baylor, I'm still going. UCLA, I'm picking them to win both at Arizona. So then their Stanford game is until the seventh. So I still think, you know, I mean, you got UConn's got Oregon. I don't think they win Baylor and Oregon. If they do, that would be like you said. If I think any UConn fan, if they go two and one between Baylor, Oregon, and South Carolina, should be very happy. Honestly, I'd be satisfied with one and two. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, against the top um, three teams in the country. Exactly. Yeah. So. UConn and UCLA, though, we both we both agree that it's going to be um, Oregon State, NC State first, and UConn, UCLA last, correct? Yeah, I think we both agree on that. So, well, actually, not really, because I'm saying UConn will lose this week, so never mind. Ah, but right. <laughs> you're right. I'm wrong. <laughs> if they win this week, though, then yes, UConn and UCLA last. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so kind of moving away from, you know, the UConn big non-conference matchup, but I guess still talking about conference play, so the Pac-12 will still be in there. Um, What are your, you know, major takeaways you want to talk about from the first couple of weeks that we've seen of conference play? I think we've seen a lot of interesting matchups so far that kind of give us a better idea what some of these conferences are going to look like. Yeah, so I got three, three teams I want to talk about. Um and I know we talked off air about Northwestern some, um, and you might have some perspective on them as well. But uh, Northwestern is, wow, they come out of nowhere. They, uh, 
They won, what was it, 11 of the first 12. They did just drop that game to Iowa a couple days ago, right after we decided we were going to give them all this praise on this podcast. So that that put a damper on that a little bit. But there's still one team out of the AP rankings, the top team getting votes. Um, I was 15th in, in the Per Hoop Stats rating, so that's not a bad loss at all. Their other loss is by two to DePaul. They completely just put it on Maryland last week when Maryland was at the time the 12th ranked team in the AP poll, still top five in HHS. So Northwestern looks looks for real, legitimately, despite that that pretty bad loss. Not a bad loss, but the score was bad. I think it was like 25-point deficit. Mm-hmm. Was it 76 to 51 against Iowa? Uh, 77 right. 51. So 77-51. So the score wasn't good. But even coming out of that, I still think Northwestern looks like a really dangerous team that could could be uh potential even sweet 16 team this year i'm hoping to get up there uh you know to chicago at some point and watch them play this year i'm actually closer to illinois but uh northwestern played at illinois like the very first conference game of the season and i was traveling so didn't get to make it to that one but hopefully you get to see them play still yeah definitely northwestern is a team that admittedly like was not on my radar until they beat maryland and then i went back and like started looking at them and i'm like oh wow they only have a loss to the paul and now the one to iowa so um but still not a bad loss other than it was by you know 26 points but i mean they beat maryland by 23 so a huge win over maryland um so a team to keep your eye on in the Big Ten, for sure. I think we've kind of said this a little bit earlier on, but the Big Ten is kind of shaking out to be a pretty deep conference. Uh, a lot of really strong schools in there that um, are kind of emerging as maybe not Maryland's your heavy favorite. You've got, you know, Indiana in there that's been pretty strong. Uh, I think they only have losses to is it Baylor and UCLA. So again, two um not bad losses at all. We've got Minnesota, Michigan State is always strong, Michigan as well. So a lot of kind of teams in there that could shake things up. And like you said, Ohio State was close with Maryland right now. So really anything can happen in the Big Ten. So that's going to be a conference to keep an eye on in general, I think is my biggest takeaway from kind of diving in on Northwestern. Yeah, so so I had some numbers actually I looked up just on the Big Ten. Um in terms of how good that com- the conference strength uh, this season, they actually, this one I didn't look up. I heard, I think Debbie Antonelli might have said it, uh, or one of the announcers recently, but they had their record for their 40, 39 or 40 year history this year in, uh, for non conference winning percentage. The Big Ten's done playing non conference games and they have a higher winning percentage collectively than they ever have. So, that just tells you something about the strength top to bottom. I do think the Pac-12 is the better league still, but I think the Big Ten is the deepest league this year. I think just from if you look at teams like 6, 7, 8, 9 in the Big Ten, those are better than the teams 6, 7, 8, 9 in the Pac-12. And Big Ten has 9 of the top 50 in RPI, 9 of the top 50 in our per hoop stats ratings. Pac-12 has 6 of the top 50 in both. Um so I just think the Big Ten, at the Pac-12, the Big Three, especially the Big Four, really, the Oregon schools, Stanford, and UCLA, are better than the top of the Big Ten, especially now that Maryland isn't quite looking as good as they had been at the top. But that middle of the Big Ten is is kind of ridiculous. And I think ESPN's Bracketology has the Big Ten getting 10 teams in right now. 
10 teams in the field, which is just loaded. So, so that schedule is going to be a gauntlet. It'll be fun to watch all year. Yeah, I'd echo that. And you're right that they have 10 in the latest ESPN bracketology. I think Pac-12 has seven. So it kind of gives you an idea that the Big Ten is definitely deeper. Pac-12 is the I would say the better conference just in that they're like top heavy with those four teams that you mentioned um, kind of gives them some more star power, a little more intrigue kind of going into, you know, March and stuff. You're expecting to see three to four Pac-12 teams on the top uh, two seed lines, which is kind of crazy. You could, it's not like out of the question that you could have three number one seeds from the Pac-12. Um, so that'll be kind of a storyline to follow there. But going back to the Big Ten, they are just so deep in like true like we were talking about parody like really anyone could be anyone with the exception of like a couple of the bottom teams um on any given night so it'll be very interesting to be following throughout the season and how all that you know plays out yeah definitely definitely could could be that conference that has like five seven through ten seats or something like Mm -hmm. that yeah agreed and especially because you might with the way this league is and the depth of it, um, but like not being super top heavy, I think you could end up with a lot of teams from conference play that they you know are playing strong teams, but they're gonna have you know less great looking records at the end of conference play just because really there is just so much of a chance to kind of shake things up on any given night. So you said you had three teams you wanted to comment on, so that was Northwestern. What's the next one you want to talk about? Yeah, so I also wanted to mention Syracuse. Uh, as far as takeaways from the first week or so of uh, true conference play, Syracuse came into uh, this past week six and six, which is we all know you know how good they are, and they played a really tough schedule. They didn't really have any kind of quote bad losses of those six, but at the same time, five hundred isn't. It doesn't matter who you play. You got to be above five hundred if you want to get in the tournament in March. So Syracuse was kind of in a perilous position, really needing to come on strong in ACC play. Then they come in this past week, win two crazy overtime games. Um, we all saw the first one, I think, uh, against Florida State with that amazing out-of-bounds play, sideline out-of-bounds that uh, Coach Quentin Hillsman drew up to, to win the game with 0.8 seconds left. Um, and then they also had to come back a little bit against – Notre Dame, actually, at home, uh, they were down three, and Notre Dame had the ball with, like, 30 seconds left. Uh, shot clock almost off, and they had to foul. Notre Dame misses both free throws, and they come back. They call a timeout again. Uh, Hillsman draws something up. I don't actually think they ran what he drew up because it actually didn't look like a great shot. It was kind of a step-back guarded three, but it went in, tied the game, and they ran away with it in overtime. So, Crazy week for them to get back on track, get a couple big overtime wins. They actually had two overtime games earlier in the year, so we might have to start calling them the overtime orange. They have four of them this year. But uh, um, just really big for them to to get back above 500, 8, and 6 now. And I was actually looking up, too, after those two uh, timeout plays, the one to win against Florida State and then the one to tie it against Notre Dame, uh, just looking up some numbers on synergy. So in terms of the efficiency on points per possession on after timeout plays versus regular half court plays, so like how much the team gets better after a timeout on offense, Syracuse is third in the country this year. So that really speaks to uh, to 
Quentin Hillsman, just how his ability to drop a good play. It's not just we all saw it against Florida State, but that's something that he's just been good at all year, um, even just throughout the course of games. So so it's cool that that's kind of coming coming out in big-time situations for them to help him win a couple games. Yeah, definitely. I admittedly haven't watched the Notre Dame game yet, but I watched the Florida State one. And yeah, and maybe that one was just crazy. It was Florida State with Kia Gillespie put up a bucket with, you know, leaving just 0.8 seconds for Syracuse on the clock. Um, and she would have had a phenomenal game for Florida State if we want to talk about them at all. Um, I think kind of one of the favorites, in my opinion, at least in the ACC. They were undefeated until that game. Um, it probably should be considered a favorite alongside Louisville to win the ACC. But um, so she had a fantastic game and then they ran that crazy play um, often. I think Coach Q said that it was like something he wrote up on an outback napkin. <laughs> <laughs> but it worked. So hey, yeah. wherever you wrote it, it worked. Um, so that was a crazy game. I think that was like last Thursday night. Uh, so yeah, definitely a team to be keeping an eye on a rough kind of you know fall of things for the non-conference schedule for them so they really are going to need to have a strong ACC um, kind of record they have some you know wins from the non-conference over they lost to Oregon they lost to Stanford West Virginia Michigan so kind of teams that aren't a big deal to lose to but then there's one over lost to Green Bay which I feel like is um you know, not a great loss to have on the resume if you're trying to pick one out there. That's the biggest issue for them going into March. But so far, their only conference loss is to Louisville, so they've got a win over Florida State. So they're in pretty good shape, I'd say, in the ACC. Um, I think the ACC is interesting this year in that it is like not the typical ACC that we're thinking of where it's, you know, is Louisville or Notre Dame going to win it? And then there's everybody else. I think it's way more open than it usually is. I mean, obviously, Notre Dame is probably not a favorite to win it, um, so it'll be interesting to keep an eye on as well. Yeah, I'm just uh, I'm pulling up our ratings here. Actually, Louisville and Notre Dame, neither of those teams are in. This shouldn't be surprising about Notre Dame, but Louisville is also not in the top three in the ACC in our ratings. Uh, mm-hmm. They're actually fourth. Florida State is first at number 10. Um followed by Georgia Tech and NC State, 13 and 14. Georgia Tech's maybe a team that hasn't been getting enough love either. They're just, they love to grind and defend, and that's a team that could could give some people problems in the ACC. Yeah, definitely. Another team that only has three losses so far, so a pretty strong resume for heading into the tournament. Um, and, yeah, again, those, I mean, two of those losses are maybe not great, but they, one of those losses is just to Texas A&M. So a super strong team there. Um, they're two and one in conference play so far. So things are pretty wide open in the ACC so far. Yeah, and Georgia Tech does looks like travels to Florida State uh, in their next game. So that'll be huge for for uh, kind of getting a picture of the top of the ACC standings. Uh, Tech has a big win over Miami to uh, not to start off conference play as their second game. It looks like last mm-hmm. week uh, they did. Who's on the road to Wake Forest, but the other two games, Rutgers is is getting votes in the top twenty-five. That's that's a solid team, and then obviously you mentioned Texas A&M. So um, Georgia Tech's another one of those teams that you know, especially we'll see what they do against Florida State. But if they even compete in that game, um, come within you know the last minute or two of winning, they don't even have to win in my book to 
to show me that they are at least a true contender for for uh, the top four in the ACC, getting you know that double buy in the ACC tournament. Agreed. I think that's kind of a you know maybe under the radar game on Thursday. There's a lot of big games this Thursday, but that Florida State. Um, Georgia Tech one is one to keep an eye on for sure. Could be more interesting than some of the other ones, despite the like uh, Georgia Tech not being ranked. Yeah, absolutely. That'll be that'll be a multi-screen night for sure. <laughs> yeah, I will be at UConn Baylor, so I'll be playing catch up the next day. But <laughs> lots of big <laughs> games to be keeping an eye on the score, and I suppose while well, on that the other one. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, it's exciting. Yeah. All right. And you had one more team you wanted to hit on before we jump over to a couple other comments from me. I did. So um, another team kind of in the same camp as uh, Georgia Tech that maybe isn't getting talked about enough is Oklahoma State. I wanted to give them a little bit of love. They actually just recently cracked the top 25 in our HHS ratings. They, uh, they had kind of an off year last year after being a solid program you know, for the last several years. They fell out of the top 100 in our ratings. They were under 500 for the first time in quite a while. Um, but over the offseason, they bring in Natasha Mack, a JUCO transfer, who was the JUCO D1 Player of the Year, 6'4", inside presence, um, led the nation in points last year. Um, and all of a sudden... Her presence uh, has just changed things on both ends of the floor for them to be back to competing in the Big 12. She's averaging 17 points, 13 and a half rebounds, one and a half steals, and three blocks on 55% shooting. Um, so she's just a, a complete force and has really changed things for them. They're a top 10 defense in the country, um, in large part thanks to you know her shot-blocking presence. has um, really changed things. They're the second best team in the big 12, I think by about any measure this year. So if Baylor does not run the table in the big 12, I think when they go on the road to Stillwater will be uh, their biggest test. That, that doesn't happen until February, but that's another one that I have circled on my calendar. Yeah, definitely. Another kind of under the radar team that in conference play could make quite the splash. So yeah, a couple more that I wanted to talk about going back, of course, to the Pac-12. I feel like it's hard to talk about conference play without talking about the Pac-12. And of course, you know, I'm going to bring up UCLA, but uh, I think they kind of had an interesting, you know, two home games this past weekend or so with uh, Arizona State at home on Friday and then Arizona at home on Sunday. Um, I think the Arizona State game was actually probably the less anticipated game, but ended up being the one that went more down to the wire. It was interesting in that UCLA kind of struggled with their rebounding in that game, um, especially on the defensive glass. It was, it was like the last play of the game where they were up by two or so and Arizona State had the ball. And I think Arizona State probably got like four offensive rebounds on that final play. Luckily for UCLA, they didn't connect on any of them. So they, you know, UCLA ended up winning um, and not sending it to overtime, but kind of a fascinating ending there that almost slipped away from them um so that was a challenging game for them with it probably largely due to Arizona State's defense but they kind of made a statement I think by winning over Arizona pretty handedly on Sunday it ended up being I think a 12 point win but really they just blew it open in the third quarter I think it was about like 28 to 13 they outscored Arizona by in that third quarter so just kind of really ran away with the game there 
Um, so that one was interesting to me. I think when people think about the Pac-12, a lot of times they think, unless you're me because I love UCLA, but most people are thinking, you know, you've got your top, which is your two Oregon teams and your Stanford team. And then you've got, you know, Arizona and UCLA that are kind of vying for that fourth spot. Um, and I think that win over Arizona on Sunday kind of made a statement that UCLA maybe is the favorite for that fourth spot. I still think that they're going to win the regular season, but most people probably aren't with me on that one. So um, I would still say they're kind of, you know, pushing themselves up towards that elite tier. And I think the biggest difference maker over Arizona was just the bench production. I think Arizona had just three bench points on their bench where UCLA had 20. Um, Chantel Horvat was incredible for them on Sunday. She had, I think, 10 points and 10 rebounds, just really came off the bench and made a huge statement um, defensively and offensively for them. So I thought that was good to see that they kind of got some really strong production off their bench. Yeah, definitely. Bench play is, is one of those things that's huge when you get into, you know, the conference tournament, NCAA tournament time when you're playing those games real close together you know, especially in the conference tournament, back-to-back-to-back situations sometimes and you're playing on no rest and you're exhausted. A team that has a deeper bench like that can really um, kind of flex their muscles more in, in those situations than when uh, than the regular season when you have three days between games to rest. So that'll be definitely big for them. Um, and, yeah, I'm looking at, to your point about the offensive rebounding, in the Arizona State game, um, Arizona State actually rebounded half of their own misses. Um, which is probably concerning for UCLA. Mm-hmm. Um, that home against Arizona State, who's a good but not great team, they can barely get away with a win still by uh, giving up a 50% offensive rebounding percentage. But that won't work once they get into February and play those other top three teams, Oregon, Oregon State, and Stanford. If they if they don't rebound over half their opponents' misses in those games, it's, it's over. It won't even be close. So if there is one one thing to point to, yeah, I think you're right. Definitely that uh, that's something that, that they probably need to shore up going forward. Agreed. And I would say CLA kind of has relied on the other end a lot on their offensive rebounding too. They're in top 10% in the country for their offensive rebounding rate, which is kind of what makes their offense so strong because their field goal percentage is only is actually outside of the top 100. So it's they're not making shots on their first attempt, but those second chance opportunities are really saving them is what has them kind of at that you know 20th about or 19th it is in the her hoop stats offensive rating so that's something I would like to see from them as well going forward is trying to you know clean up getting those first chances to be better looks and to fall more especially if they can continue with that offensive rebounding and get those other their first chance looks to fall more they'll be in a really great shape for their offense Oh, yeah, definitely. And you mentioned the – I felt like this was a nugget we should probably throw out. You mentioned that they're 19th in offensive rating. They're also 19th in defensive rating. I don't know how many teams in the country are the same at both. Probably not very many, but <laughs> yeah. um, UCLA could, could be the definition of a balanced team, according to our ratings. Definitely. And then the other thing I wanted to hit on before we kind of move away from talking about conference play is the SEC, because we haven't really mentioned them yet, but they've got – one, two, three, four, five teams, I think, or no, six teams ranked in the top 25, four in the top 20. Um, so kind of another conference that maybe is sliding under the radar a little bit, but pretty strong this year. 
I think we could all say for sure that South Carolina is the favorite to win it, but that, you know, 2-3 spot between Texas A&M, Mississippi State, Kentucky, yeah, Kentucky and Tennessee and throw Arkansas in there as well um, is kind of up in the air. So no, like, specific comments really there for me. Just wanted to kind of bring that up as well, that they're a conference to keep an eye on as well. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have any uh, anyone who you think might come out of that group to get second? Well, I mean, you always have to look at Texas A&M, right, with Kennedy Carter. Really, I mean, she has the potential to just win a lot of these games for um, for A and M. Definitely a player to watch. Mississippi State is in a bit of a rebuilding year, but still, I mean, ranked thirteenth in the country, so rebuilding, as you call it, is I don't know if that's really rebuilding when you're still a top fifteen team. Um, and I'd also throw Kentucky in there as well. Um, had a big win over Tennessee. Yeah, a big win over Tennessee on Sunday. So that's another one to keep an eye on. I'm not sold on Tennessee being one of the top teams there, though. I think that they play, they've gotten kind of up in the AP poll just from a lot of wins in the non conference, but a pretty weak strength of schedule. So. I think the AC or the SEC slate will kind of be a test for them if they really are at that level. I don't know that I think that they are. I'm, I'm definitely with you on Tennessee. I'm not a, I'm not sold on them either at being as being that kind of top level team in the SEC. Uh, I'm actually not fully sold on Texas A&M either. I'm not sure if there's anyone else, any listeners or anyone else in the country who would agree with me on that. But I am sold. I will say I'm sold on their potential. Uh, but I. I feel like sometimes I, I watch them and they they ball watch because Kennedy Carter is so good. It just almost leads to, you know, the rest of the offense being stagnant and that they almost rely a little bit too much on her. And they could, I mean, they could do that and still make a run as good as Kennedy Carter is. They're one of those teams that if anyone can win relying on one player that much, it is Texas A&M. But I'm still just not sold on them being kind of that, next level team right under South Carolina. I see them more as like maybe three through five range somewhere. A team I really like is Arkansas, I think, to come out and maybe get second. I love watching Chelsea Dungy play, and I, I love just the the way that they run the floor and hit threes. It's, uh, it's fun to watch from just an aesthetic perspective as a fan, but it works really well too. Um, so I'm really excited for that uh, Arkansas-South Carolina game actually on Thursday. We talked about Thursday being a multi-screen night. That's another one that that's going to be uh, pretty high on my radar to see if Arkansas uh, can compete on the road against the best team in the league uh, and really just kind of make a statement that, uh, that they belong right up there in the top tier in the SEC. I think how they perform Thursday night will be will be big to show whether whether they belong in that tier. Definitely, I agree with that. I think – one of the interesting things about the SEC, too, is just be- that South Carolina is obviously, you know, kind of that top tier team that everyone's favoriting to win the SEC. But you have to remember that so much of that South Carolina team, in my opinion, runs through Aaliyah Boston and how good Aaliyah Boston team plays. And she's a freshman. So there is always a chance you know, when she doesn't have a good night, South Carolina is not as good as they are when she has a great night. Um so that's a thing to keep an eye on. If she kind of hits a freshman wall at some point this season, it could kind of shake up that SEC top standings as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That'll be that'll be interesting to see once we get into kind of late February, March. Um, 
to see how she performs. And some of those other freshmen too, actually. Uh, so yeah, we, we had that great article by Derek actually about the three uh, big time freshmen for South Carolina, including uh, Zia Cook and Bria Beal, as well as Aaliyah Boston, like you mentioned. So uh, the freshman wall, you know, could be big for just when you go, when you have basically half of your significant rotation is freshman. Um, that is definitely going to be something to keep an eye on down the stretch when it gets kind of late season for them. Agreed. It's something that'll make the SEC maybe a little bit more wide open than people are thinking it's going to be right now. So as I mentioned earlier, we're going to dive into kind of this Thursday's upcoming big marquee non-conference matchup between UConn and Baylor with some extra special content this week. Um, We've got Calvin and I's opinions of that matchup coming up, but we've also got some great content from our uh, non-unplugged version of the podcast host, John Little, who was live at the UConn SMU game on Sunday. So we've got some content from him. Megan, I'm really excited we're doing this podcast, and I was excited to be able to go see UConn play in person uh, for the first time this year when they visited SMU. Obviously, an easy win for UConn, 80-42, to and I was there basically to wait out that contest, uh, make sure everything came out okay, and then uh, just uh, accost everybody I could with questions about Baylor after the game, and that included uh, Gino Ariema, the head coach at UConn, and he was asked uh, actually by another media member to start out here, and there were several questions in a row that pertaining to the Baylor game, but just does he feel like his number one UConn ladies are ready for Baylor? At this time of the year, you know, who knows? You know, who knows? I think um, Thursday's game will certainly be the toughest test that we've had. No question about that. You know, they present a different challenge than any other team that we've played. I mean, we've played some pretty good teams, but we haven't played a team with their size and their depth, you know, their <clears throat> their style of play. So it'll be a real challenge for us. It, when when you play these games, it's like you're just accumulating data, you know. So we know a little more about our team today than we did yesterday, and we'll try to apply that to Thursday's game. And then Thursday we'll find out some stuff about our team, really good and really bad. And that'll help us going into the next game. That's what this is all about. Or you can not schedule these games and just, you know, win every game and pretend like everything's great. But you have to get, you know, you have to get smacked around a little bit so that you can, you know, get stronger. And um, Thursday's going to be a real, real challenge, real challenge. I mean, don't get me wrong. They've, they've got a challenge in front of them, too. But this is going to be a big challenge for us. What parts of this game can you take from uh, to benefit for, against Baylor? Mostly that defensively we're able, even though it's a different different game, Thursday night, different, different players, we didn't get beat in the lane as much as we thought. We didn't get it hurt as much as we thought in the lane. We can build on that and, and, and help devise a better plan too to defend in the lane and 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 that's going to be a big a big key going in, whenever you play Baylor you know with their size the second part is is um, the ball movement and the way everybody got involved we weren't solely relying on one one player the ball moved and it touched a lot of people's hands and we scored a lot of different ways so 
that's something you have to do against a really good team. You can't go in there and say, okay, well, we need these two guys to win it for us. That doesn't work that way. Last year against Baylor in Waco, it was a very emotional game. Yeah. Do you hope for that same type of emotion from your crowd on Thursday? And if so, how do your players handle that? Uh, um, well, every time we play a, a, a really good team that's in the top five in the country, every time we play one of those teams on the road because of who we are, it's an emotional game. We bring out the best in, in the best teams. Uh, the Baylor game was no uh, was no different. I thought the first half was incredibly emotional and it was incredibly hard fought and intense. And what I took out of that game was that we got a lot of shots and we didn't make them. I mean, we're a pretty good shooting team and we didn't make them. Um, and they had a lot to do with that. So how will our crowd be? Our crowd's a little more like, eh, it's Connecticut. These are our guys. We see them all the time. It's Baylor, just the next team on the road. I mean, on the road to where we're going to the Final Four, you know. So I think our fans will be excited because it's Baylor. Uh, how excited? I think that's up to us as a team to make them, make them even more excited than they will be. It'll be interesting to see how many people show up. We're playing, at, you know, downtown. I've heard some say that the game is more important to Baylor than it is to you, just with future schedules. You guys have a chance to, quote, prove yourself more down the line in some other really difficult games. Do you buy into that at all? No, I don't think so. I mean, if Baylor doesn't beat us and wins the rest of their games, they're going to be a number one seed probably or close to it. Um, I don't know what, I don't know about the Big 12. I don't know how, how strong they are. I don't know what their conference rating is. But, um, you know, at – at this time, at this time of the year, or in the NCAA tournament, or any other time, we've been around long enough to know that um, that's the case. In every t- every game we play like this, the same things come out before the game. This game is way more important to them than to you guys because they need to prove that they can beat you guys, that they can beat Connecticut at Connecticut. Blah 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 blah. I mean, we've been doing that for 25 years. It gets old after a while. I mean. This game's important to us, and it's important to to Baylor. But Friday morning, we're going to wake up, and we're going to either be pretty happy with what we did, or we're going to be pretty disappointed with what we did. And we got a game Saturday, and you know, we've played in so many games like this in the last twenty years that games like this just kind of we're excited about it. But that's it. We're not coming up with any any surprises. Appreciate that insight. Finally, I'm just curious, as you guys prepare for a game like this, Lauren just came back for them yeah. last uh, last game. Do you even look at any tape of Baylor Sands, Lauren Cox, or uh, how, do you, mean, how do you guys use that? you gotta, you got to play the team that shows up. And um, they've managed to play pretty well without without Lauren. And they'll play, um, they'll play even better with her in the lineup. It's asking a lot for that kid who hasn't played a lot to all of a sudden come in and be, you know, where she was last year at the Final Four. So um, we don't know what which Lauren we're getting. They probably don't know either. But either way, I would say having her on the floor makes them a way better team than not having her. So watching tape of them without her, 
yeah, you can figure out, okay, well, when they sub, this is what they're going to look like. But I'd rather focus on what they're going to look like when Lauren's playing. Just some great stuff there from Gino. I just love how he really thinks through everything and tries to give you a an honest answer to every question. So I, I appreciate that for sure. Also talked with Kyla Irwin right after the game. She went five for five in 30 minutes. She had four threes as well. She dished off seven assists, one of her best games of the year. You look at her plus minus. She was a plus 41 in that matchup. She might be playing her best of the year going into the Baylor contest. And we asked several questions of her about what she expected from the Lady Bears. I think we're really excited. We can't wait. Uh, We know this month is going to be really hard and really challenging, but I think we're up for it. We want to be challenged. We want to get better every single day, so I think we're really excited. How difficult is it to focus yourself when you're not playing a top-10 team or something like Baylor? And you know that game is on the horizon. What do you guys do as a team to make sure you stay focused through these conference games? Um, I think we definitely do a good job of making sure that we stay focused on that game that's ahead, not not the next game, but the game that we have right before. Um, the coaches do a good job of making sure that we stay focused, and then also uh, we know that we are preparing for those games, so we have to still play as hard as we can, still run the floor, still switch the screens when we're told to switch. So um, it's, it's just all preparation. We don't like to try to take games off or think that it's easy because, you know, we want to play basketball. We want to play it how we, how we play it. Last year's game against Baylor was so emotional. Do you hope that it's a similar atmosphere when you guys have them at home? Yeah, I think the crowd and our fans are going to be a huge uh, support system for us, and I think it's going to help shake them up and be on our side. Um, So I'm really excited to see all the turnout, um, be loud in the gym. It's going to be really exciting. That's Kyla Irwin, senior forward from UConn, talking about what she expects from this Baylor game. So we just heard from Kyla Irwin, who had a lot to say about the upcoming game with UConn and Baylor on Thursday. But I think one thing that didn't get really addressed to the audio is that she might be one of the big keys to the game for UConn coming into this matchup. She had a huge game on um, Sunday when UConn played SMU for conference play career highs in both points and assists with 14 points perfect from the floor in addition to that and then seven assists for the Huskies was a huge asset to them on offense I think we've kind of seen her be like a role player on defense for them but she doesn't play or doesn't shoot much on offense so um, it's kind of interesting to see how she can impact the game as a fifth option I think um, one of the things going into this one is right that UConn has these four players that are really really good can kind of do everything for the Huskies but they're also gonna garner a lot of defensive attention from Baylor so who can be that fifth option that's gonna step up and maybe make a difference for them on the offensive end a lot of people would probably point to Anna Makarat or Aubrey Griffin the freshman but I think in this one I think it's gonna be important to have kind of a more veteran player in that role Kyle's a senior she looks poised to do that to me she's a bit of a statistical anomaly in that she's like literally shooting better than anyone in the country. She's shooting, I think, 1.89 like points per scoring attempt. So absolutely insane efficiency, but with really low usage. And maybe if UConn can use her a little bit more against Baylor, they could see a positive effect on their offense. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, so we actually talked about her a little bit in our last podcast, I think. And also I know she's come up in our, our uh, offline Slack 
conversations as, as someone we'd like to see get, you know, a few more attempts, but also someone who just really knows her role and takes the right shots. There's a reason why she leads the country in points per scoring attempt. You're right. I have it here. It is 1.89. Second is 1.5. And then it goes down a bunch in the 1.4. So it's really not even close between her and second, which like you said, is partially a function of that. She has a low usage, but it's also a function that she knows the right shots to take. Um, she, she makes really smart decisions. She doesn't force anything. Um, and I agree with what you said, just about having a veteran presence out there. You know, this will be the best team that Anna Makarat has ever played um, in her college career. Baylor's better than anyone that UConn has faced so far this season. Um, Kyla Irwin, just having someone who's kind of been in these types of games before, uh, just on both ends of the floor, you mentioned her defense too. I think that'll be huge for UConn. Totally agreed. I think also you just expect that, I mean, it's going to be a pro UConn crowd, but it's still going to be a loud crowd on Thursday night. And just having someone that's played in that environment many of times before, instead of someone that, you know, I think the UConn fans have seen it um, when Notre Dame was, or the, sorry, the UConn freshmen have seen it when Notre Dame was at home, but they haven't really played in that kind of environment necessarily. So it's going to be a bit of a shock, I think, to them. And just like dealing with the emotional and like the um, pressure that comes from that. So I think having a senior that's kind of poised and ready to step in that role and maybe be their fifth option on Thursday could be a big thing for them. So looping back over to John, he's got some more from Didi Richards for us before we head into more of Calvin and I's analysis. And then I also had the opportunity to talk to Dee Richards on Monday, the guard for Baylor. Outstanding defender and really started off with her uh, with a similar question, uh, just chatting with her about whether or not she feels like her Baylor team is ready if they're playing well enough heading into this UConn matchup. Um, I think we're playing at a high level, not to our highest level, but I think we're, you know, going forward. And I think that's the only thing that we can be, you know, thankful for and be happy about. Well, where, where do you feel like personally um, the team can take it to another level? Well, you know, LC, this is her second game back. So she's clearly not at her, you know, 100% yet. So whenever LC gets to her 100%, I think that we'll always be a better team. No, I hear you there. Can you as another player on the floor can you quantify can you help explain to us what it means to have her on the floor and and how it changes things for you even if lc like right now how she isn't like at her full 100 percent, i think it's just her presence her on the court you know whenever she's on the court i can you know pressure the ball because if i get beat i know that she's there ready to block a shot for me or if we need a quick bucket, you know, you can't automatically hit LC. So just having her presence to make plays and to play help defense and rebound for her for us, I think is how beneficial she is to us. I think that's really well said. Uh, you know, anytime you go up against um, uh, another uh, great team, you know, all five players on the floor at a given time uh, can play. How different is that than some of your non-conference opponents that you've that you've seen? And what do you have to watch out for when you think about um, how you attack both offensively and defensively? Just just how strong they are across the board. At, you know, at some point, all of us are kind of, we're all just great teams, you know, across the board, offensively, defensively. At the end of the day, um, you need the team that, you know, does little things like rebounding, less turnovers. At the end of the day, that's the team that are going to win because 
we all have good offensive players. We all have good defensive players, and we all basically know each other's offenses due to scouting reports. So I think at the end of the day, it's just who executes the plays best, who rebounds, and who gets less turnovers. UConn, um, and listening to them talk after their SMU game yesterday, they were talking a lot about dictating the tempo, that that's how they want to play. What is Baylor's tempo this year? How have you guys figured out uh, it's best for you to play this season? I think every year since I've been here at least, and I think before even with Odyssey, we've had you know a quick tempo kind of game as a team. So I think this year our team is maybe fat, way faster than we were last year, of course. And um, considering we have Taya and not nothing against Lonnie, Lonnie was a great player, but now that we have Melissa on the Smith, it brings more speed to the court. So I think we're just a faster team this year. You know, that's a great point. And so what kind of game do you think that's going to bring then uh, come Thursday? A, a team that wants to push it a little bit in UConn and you guys uh, being a quicker team, do you anticipate a, a more up and down, higher scoring game than you saw last year? I definitely think it's going to be a more up-down game for sure because they, you know, also are a fast team. So I think both both teams, considering we both play an up-tempo game, then we're both going to we're all going to be running the ball up and down the court. One thing that I have been seeing from some people, and so you're in the know, you are uh, in this. Um, uh, some people say that this game means more to Baylor than it does to UConn, and obviously you can't you know reach across and and feel what it's like to be uh, playing on that UConn side. But basically, their theory is UConn's got some other big games down the line, and this is Baylor's quote last statement to make a regular season case that they're one of the best teams in the entire nation. What would you say to that, uh, to somebody who feels that way, that uh, that maybe it's a bigger game to Baylor than it is to UConn? You know, speaking for us, we this is definitely a big game for us or a bigger game for us because it is one of our last games to kind of, you know, play a team that is capable of giving us a number one seed in the NCAA tournament. So I do feel that this is a big game for us in that case because, whether we, if we lose this game, that's definitely going to put us in a tight situation where we're kind of relying on other people to lose or to mess up, and that's never a position that a team wants to be in. You know the energy that was involved in last year's game. I know that was just such an emotional contest. Can you uh, recount what that was like uh, in the Farrell Center last year? Um, it was a you know unreal feeling. We had a sellout crowd. Um, Chloe, Lonnie, LC, kind of you know, made a game. Like, they went, they did great. They played well. Um, it was an exciting game to play in. Mulkey was intense. The atmosphere was intense, and I expect the same thing this year. So I'm kind of excited to see what this year holds. Yeah, does Coach Mulkey have a different intensity leading into a game like this uh, during the week? Uh, now that you've been around for several years, you've seen her, uh, you know, at, at different points of the season. Does she get a little bit more intense in practice and things like that leading up to it? Honestly, Mulkey's very consistent. You know, whether we're playing, you know, non-ranked team to a ranked team, Mulkey's still going to be the same intense person that she is. So preparing for UConn is like preparing for every other game that we play for. Do you anticipate that, uh, you know, UConn's going to try to bring that same intensity that they saw last year um, from you guys and, and from the fans? Do you anticipate that same kind of atmosphere uh, when you guys uh, play at Connecticut? Um, Definitely, because I definitely think that had a huge factor in us winning. I think our crowd and the atmosphere that we had kind of played a huge part. So I expect them to kind of reciprocate the energy, give them a um, an advantage towards to us. 
awesome. And if if you had to pick out one thing that uh, it, that was kind of your key, the the thing that you're thinking about heading into this game, what is the biggest thing you can do to impact the outcome of Thursday's game? Um, right now, get back to the way I've been playing defense. I think that I've gone not backwards, but I've come you know complacent on the defensive end of the court. So I think getting more steals or getting crashing the boards on defensive rebounds or offensive rebounds, I think, is definitely a way I can impact the game in a big way. That's D.D. Richards from Baylor. L.C. is back, as D.D. said. Lauren Cox is back. Baylor is at full strength. Uh, Baylor now number six. UConn number one and undefeated. Can't wait for this matchup on Thursday. Glad to be able to bring you a little preview audio, Megan. Now I'll, I'll turn the rest over to you. So we've heard from Gino Ariema, Kyla Irwin, and then Didi Richards from Baylor all kind of talking about Thursday's huge non-conference matchup between UConn and Baylor. Um, lots of good points from those three of them. But coming back to maybe who you're less excited for to hear from and me and Calvin on our opinions of that game. Um, one of the things that Gino and Didi both touched on was the importance of this game to each team. A lot of people are saying that it's more important to Baylor than it is to UConn. I would probably echo that sentiment. Do you have any thoughts on that kind of in reference to March and seating and those implications? First off, let's not slight the Unplugged podcast, Megan. This, this <laughs> podcast is right up there with Gina Oriema in my book in terms of what people want to listen to. We got to give the people what they want. But that being said, yeah, so I think uh, Baylor – think a lot of people are saying that Baylor you know it's more important for them and I do agree with that from the standpoint of the schedule I think if you look at Baylor's non-conference schedule and UConn's non-conference schedule um, UConn's was a lot tougher they haven't played anyone in like in the top five yet like Baylor but they played all teams in the top hundred until they started conference play uh, well like full swing started conference play a couple games ago the last two games were the first games outside the top hundred and we already mentioned they have the top three teams in our ratings still on their schedule. Meanwhile, Baylor played one of the softer non-conference schedules in the country. The Big 12 doesn't give you as many opportunities with only nine other teams and Oklahoma State, like we said, being the best at 25. So Baylor just doesn't have as many opportunities for really big-time resume wins like this as UConn will. So when they do get one like this, if they want to get a one seed, they really they really need to take care of business where UConn will get a chance. Even if UConn slips up here, they'll get chances against Oregon and South Carolina still uh, to, you know, build that resume for a potential one seed Baylor. This might be it for Baylor. Yeah, I'd echo that. I think when you're talking about this game, you're looking at two programs that are looking to be number one seeds come March and UConn, like you said, has a lot of other opportunities. Yes, if they've got Baylor, this would be a huge win for the resume, but they've also got Oregon coming up uh, in February. They've got South Carolina coming up at South Carolina coming up in February as well. So kind of two other big chances to prove where they stand among these top teams. So it's not, it's a, UConn is in a place where they want to prove themselves, right? They're at number one in the country, but haven't really, they've played good teams, but haven't played great teams. Um, and they do have a weak conference, so they do want to prove themselves going into Thursday. But I think when you look at Baylor, they've got a win over Indiana, which looks good. They've got a loss to South Carolina, which, you know, is without Lauren Cox and maybe not a big deal. But 
this is the really their last chance to get like a statement win on that resume that like shines out as like hi here's why we should be a number one seed um and if they don't beat UConn I think they're basically relying on other teams losing to get up end up on that top line I think D.D. Richards alluded to that as well this is really important for them if they want to be a number one seed going into March definitely this is going to be this is going to be the last shot of the signature win and even if they run the table depending on you know we talked about the parity they might have a shot because of that and parity this year if a couple other teams at the top lose they lose to UConn and run the table in the big 12 all the way through or one seed, but they would, like you said, have to rely on a couple other teams losing in that case um, in order to get on that top line, I think. So they really, really want that signature win. Agreed. Agreed. I think another thing that stood out from what Gino and Kyla and Dee Richards said was that there was a lot of talk about last year's game. To me, last year is a different game, right? You don't have on the UConn side, Nafisha Collier or Katie Lucamelson anymore. On the Baylor side, you don't have Kalani Brown anymore or Chloe Jackson. Um, so it's a whole different kind of ball game. <laughs> Pardon the pun, but um, I think that last year's game was last year's game, and this year's game, we are looking at a whole new set of like kind of key players going into it. Do you have any thoughts on who you know some of the key players are on either side? for this one yeah well to your point about last year being a whole different game uh one of the key players i was going to bring up is olivia nelson odota and she actually only played four minutes in that game last year at baylor uh this year uconn gets it at home she's going to play a little bit more than four minutes i would assume um so i think this is kind of her chance to to announce to the world you know say i am an all-American caliber player. Maybe not this year, but in my career, I can get to that level of being an all-American. She can either, she can do be that in this game, or she can be the reason that they lose too. If she gets into foul trouble and ends up playing, probably won't be four, but if she ends up not being able to play 20, 25 minutes, if she gets into early foul trouble and has to sit a bunch in the first half, because she really is kind of the UConn front line in a sense where you look at Baylor, they have, Lauren Cox back now, obviously, Melissa Smith, the uh, great Queen Egbo. They go so deep in that front line. They love to post up. They post up as much as anyone in the country. They love to score around the rim. They're third to last in the country in three-point rate, despite that game that Juicy Landrum had, uh, where she broke the record for three-pointers a few weeks ago. Um, they really don't shoot threes. They score in the paint, and UConn is the paint protector for for uh, for UConn, we talked about it on our last podcast. It was right after, well, the last one I was on with you, I should say. It was right after the Thanksgiving tournaments, and Baylor had just lost to South Carolina. And we talked about how, because Baylor scores so much inside, South Carolina with Aaliyah Boston and Micaiah Herbert Harrigan, who both are big-time shot blockers, uh, kind of presented a matchup problem where Baylor really had a hard time scoring inside. Um, and if Olivia Nelson Odota plays up to her full potential and stays on the court the whole game, um, she will present those same matchup problems. It will be hard for them to score inside. And she has gotten a lot better at staying out of foul trouble compared to her freshman year. She's come a long way in that. But it's at the same time, it is really hard to, to guard 
you know, four different Baylor front line players when there's no other shot blockers, there's no one in the top 850 on you in the country in UConn uh, and shot blocking outside of Nelson Adota, whereas South Carolina had multiple, they have depth uh, on their front line defensively. So there'll be a lot to shoulder, I think, just defensively for Nelson Adota um, in this game. I think she will be, how she plays defensively will be a big key, whether Baylor can, can score in the paint or whether they have to rely on threes, which they really don't like to do, like we mentioned. Uh, on the other side, um, kind of the same reason, I think Juicy Landrum is going to be a key for Baylor um, just because she is one of the, the few players that really does like to put up threes uh, with any sort of volume, and they might need her to. I don't know if they're going to need a record-setting performance from her to win, but they're going to need to need her to at least make a few threes and, and be on with her shot. Um, as long as Nelson Adota is on the floor uh, for Baylor to to get the win in this one, I was actually looking up some on-off stats and against top hundred teams, which, like we said, is all UConn's games except for the last two. Um, when Nelson Adota is on the court, opponents' two-point percentage is thirty-five point eight really low under 36% from two, but that jumps into the forties when she comes off the court. Um, and when your team like Baylor, who only really shoots from two, that's, that's huge. So I'm looking at, I'm looking at Nelson Adota have a big time game um, and juicy Landrum to maybe knock down some threes to keep Baylor in it. But I am picking UConn in the end. Yeah. I mean, I agree with both of those takes from a Baylor and a UConn perspective as those two being kind of huge keys to the game for either side. On the UConn side, I'll also add Megan Walker. I think she's been playing like an All-American so far this season. But this is kind of, you know, UConn's first top 10 type test where they've got to see if she can can run the offense that she's been running um, so far this season against a big or a harder opponent, but also a bigger opponent in Baylor. So that'll be kind of a thing to keep an eye on. And then the other thing that I'd like to comment on is kind of the point guard play in this one because you've got two experienced point, guard, point guards in Crystal Dangerfield for UConn and then Taya Cooper, who's a grad transfer from South Carolina to Baylor. Um, so two kind of elite point guards, experienced candidates um, that are going to be facing off against each other. So I think a lot of this game could come down to, you know, who can get their offense running better and facilitate better from that position yeah definitely it'll it'll be really fun to watch the the experienced guard matchup um with some of these guards and you mentioned the four players uh from last year's game that left all went to the WNBA but some of those you just mentioned playing in this year's game are going to be WNBA players too Dangerfield projected first round pick um Lauren Cox obviously is in the guard, but she's a projected really high pick. Juicy Landrum is showing up in some mock drafts, maybe in the second round. So it'll be really fun to watch some of these talented guards uh, go out there and play. I definitely agree with you. And one thing I actually wanted to throw out there too that I uh, forgot to mention in terms of the um, three-point versus two-point kind of aspect when Baylor has the ball is that not only, obviously, we mentioned Baylor is third to lowest in three-point rate, um, but also UConn's opponents get – 37% of their points from three, which is 11th highest in the nation. So UConn allows their opponents to get most of their points, not most, but higher percentage than most other teams of their points from three. But Baylor doesn't really get points from three. So 
Baylor wants to do something different than what UConn's defense wants it to. It'll, it'll be really interesting to see just who who dictates where the shots come from. I think that's that's something that I'm looking for in this game. Definitely. And I think one thing we haven't commented on in terms of, you know, key players is obviously that Baylor has Lauren Cox back for this matchup or they've had her back for a game or two now. So that's huge for them. Um, she might not be quite at full strength coming off of that foot injury, but it's going to be a big piece for them. I'm glad to see that she's going to be back for kind of this, you know, marquee matchup. But any thoughts on kind of how she impacts um, Baylor's presence on the floor? Yeah, I think it's huge because uh, this is she's probably going to be if you don't count, you know, I mean, four minutes last year that Nelson Adota played against Baylor. This might be the toughest individual matchup if if uh, Olivia is spending some time on Lauren Cox, which I think she will. She'll probably spend some time on a lot of those bigs, but Lauren Cox might be the best big that Nelson Adota has guarded at this point in her career. So um, that'll just be that'll be a huge matchup. We talked about the guard play, but Lauren Cox could could make or break if she's uh, if she's back even anywhere close to a hundred percent at this point. Um, talented as we know she is, her presence inside will be really big for Baylor. Agreed. And I think you also compound that with the fact that um, Baylor's been really strong defensively all season long, even without Lauren Cox on the floor. I mean, part of that is just due to the fact that they haven't played the strongest strength of schedule. But even against some of those stronger teams, they've held them. I mean, no one's managed to score 80 points on them this year. The best was their – the most – points another team scored on them was 74 from South Carolina in that loss so you add Lauren Cox back on the floor now that makes them even stronger defensively I mean she's a defensive player of the year candidate so it only makes them stronger so it'll be interesting to see kind of how that defense or how UConn's able to match up against that defense and then also you know they've played this elite level of defense against maybe a weaker strength the schedule does that with Lauren Cox back on the floor now, does that defense look elite against UConn? Yeah, so I'm pulling up the on-off stats here again for Lauren Cox, and obviously she hasn't played a ton. She's played 195 possessions, so I think she's played in four games, but that's about three full games worth um, if she if she played you know every minute of those games. But when she's been on the court, Baylor's defense has allowed uh, adjusted for strength of schedule. They've allowed 54 points per 100 per uh, per 100 possessions, that jumps to 64 uh, with her on the bench. So that's 10 full points per 100 possessions different with her on versus off the court, which is with all the caveats of on-off defense, you know, who is on the court with her, who they're playing, all of that stuff. Um, it still is a significant difference in terms of their defensive efficiency when Lauren Cox is in a lineup. So that'll be, like you said, very big for them on on that end of the floor as well. Definitely. And one last thing on UConn Baylor before we kind of wrap it up. What do you think of the major like difference makers for who's going to win this game? Um, yeah, I think uh, mentioned Juicy Landrum. I think, I think if she comes out and knocks down even just three or four threes, doesn't have to be fourteen. I think I think Baylor's got a good shot, but I also think um, the UConn crowd might be a big difference maker. Last year's game. You know, they don't want to talk about it. We can talk about it if we want. But last mm-hmm. year's game was in Waco. And uh, home court is – home court's even bigger when 
when there's more parity, like we talked about at the beginning of the year, because the closer two teams are together, the more likely the home team is going to win. If two teams that are completely evenly matched play each other, the home team is always going to be favored. So home court is going to be big. And I think uh, you is what I'm trying to say, Megan, you're going to be at the game. You're going to be a difference maker. Everyone at the game is going to be a difference maker. The crowd, the crowd noise. So that's, yeah, I'm, I'm picking you, Megan. You're uh, you take full credit if, if UConn wins the game. I'll be on press row, so I won't be part of the crowd, but (laughs) I'm sure the crowd will be a difference maker. (laughs) You can take credit anyway. I'll I'll still be. Yeah, to me, the one biggest difference maker in this one is going to be the rebounding. Um, I mean, Baylor is obviously the stronger rebounding team, consistent with their identity, but UConn's becoming a much stronger rebounding team, I think, than they have been in the past and than they were at the beginning of the season. I honestly think it might just come down to who kind of owns the advantage on the boards. Um, but it'll be interesting to kind of see how that all shakes out. Yeah, definitely. And that'll go back to, you know, Nelson Adota being a key. If she can, obviously she's going to be the biggest, biggest uh, rebounder for UConn and Baylor's going to just throw all sorts of big bodies at her, at her in the paint. So I really, like I said, I'm picking UConn to win. I think if UConn does win, Nelson Adota, she might not even score a point. That doesn't even matter, but she's going to have at least four blocks and at least 10, 11, 12 rebounds if UConn does win the game. That's the type of game I'm looking at from her to have if UConn wins. Agreed. Agreed. So kind of on that notion of who's going to win, we're going to try a new thing out for the end of the podcast to start off 2020. We might keep it going through the end of the season. I didn't warn you about this, so sorry. <laughs> but... <laughs> We're going to pick three games. I already picked three games to kind of pick who's going to win in the next week. Um, So the first one, obviously, we've talked a bunch about UConn Baylor. So we got to start off with that one. I mean, I think you've made it pretty clear that you think Baylor's the winner of that one. Or that UConn, sorry, that UConn's the winner of that one. Yeah, you're going with Baylor, right? (laughs) I'm going with Baylor, yes. So All right, we're split on the first one. Good way to start the decade. Split vote. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, maybe we'll keep track, see if me or the podcast guests. (laughs) or come out on top by the end of the season oh i like it (laughs) but i've got two more picked for friday so the first one is a pac-12 one because you can't do this without picking a pac-12 game i feel like so oregon state at arizona who do you have in that one oh that's a good one um i am gonna have to go with oregon state i think um i love destiny slocum i think i know uh, i talked about how big home court is and and uh, Arizona, you know, will have the crowd, but Oregon State is is playing really well right now. And I still think they feel like they're probably not getting enough respect. A lot of people, um, you know, are still talking about them as not being better than Oregon, despite their being undefeated. Maybe they haven't played as many tough games. Debbie Antonelli has them as number one, I believe, in her um, AP votes. She's an AP voter, and mm-hmm. I. Uh, I think I hope I'm not wrong about that. I think she has them as number one. So they uh, they want to prove that they can be the best team in the country. I'm going to go with Oregon State. Yeah, I'm going with Oregon State in that one as well. Um, I think, you know, for Arizona to win that, in my opinion, Ari McDonald's going to have to score 30-plus points. Um, and they still might not win if she scored 30 points. So I'm going with Oregon State as well in that one. And then the last one I have went mid-major because this one didn't make our games of the week, but I think it's a 
big game that's maybe you know kind of flying under the radar just because there's so many ranked versus ranked games this week but drake is at missouri state in the mbc on friday as well you gotta pick on that one yeah, I'm going to go with Missouri State in that one. Missouri State's the only team, regular season or conference tournament, in the Valley to beat Drake over the last three years. Um, Drake ran through undefeated a couple years, and then last year Missouri State got him once in the regular season and got him in the tournament championship. But Missouri State is trending upwards after making the Sweet 16 last year, spending a lot of times in the rankings this year. Uh and I don't think Drake is necessarily trending downwards as much as it looks like. I think the rest of the Valley is just catching up to them. Uh, Jenny Baranchek has, you're getting me on a tangent now, but <laughs> he's, uh, she's really done so much to lift the, to elevate the entire conference. And Drake just dominated the conference for a while. You had teams like Loyola or Illinois State winning two games all year. And now the conference is one of the top mid-majors. You have over half of it in the top 100. Um Everyone's competing. Loyola took Missouri State to overtime the other day. Um, So I think everyone's just kind of catching up to Drake more than Drake is really regressing. Um, But Missouri State is one of those teams who has already caught up to Drake, and I think they're going to win that game. Yeah, I agree with you. And the like depth of the MVC is definitely improving. It's a stronger conference than it has been in year past. I think Missouri State is the favorite in this one, but I'm still going to pick Drake to win and come away with the, I guess we'll call it an upset because Missouri State is ranked and Drake is not, even though Drake is probably kind of, you know, the typical conference favorite. I'm going to go with Drake on that one. So got one on the same and two difference. All right. First, uh, first one of the new year. Two, two split votes. I like it. Well, that's all for today's episode of our Hoop Stats Unplugged. Thank you again all for listening and joining us this week. As always, we hope that you'll take a minute to rate, like, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening. It helps more people find us. Um, and we always encourage you to encourage you to write reviews as well. We love hearing what you guys have to say about the con- podcast. Um, in um, new trend for 2020, we're going to try to start reading some more of your reviews on the podcast. So one from just before Christmas from Who's Junkie 13 saying, fantastic podcast. John is a terrific interviewer. Interjected. I definitely agree. And the unplugged version is an incredibly fun way to listen to the biggest conversations in women's hoops. So thanks, Hoops Junkie 13, for taking the time to review us. We hope you all will do so as well. As always, you can also reach out to us if there's anything you'd like to share about the podcast, anything you'd like to suggest. We'll definitely take your suggestions into consideration. You can reach us at podcast at herhoopstats.com and then also on Twitter at herhoopstats. Um, We hope you've also been following along with all the new content that we've got on the site as well as on our Medium articles. Make sure you're checking that out and following us on social. And you can also now subscribe to the Hoopstats newsletter to get our best content in your email inbox every day. So definitely do that as well. And thanks again for listening to us this week. Talk to you soon. (music) 